0: Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. This episode, we're joined by my friend, Republican consultant Mike Madrid. Mike Madrid is a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, a group of Republican consultants dedicated to defeating Trump and Trumpism. Mike is also a partner at the public relations firm Grassroots Lab. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: Jessica, thanks for having me. It's always great to visit with you. We've been we've been friends for a, a good long time and um I hate to count the years because because <laughs> but I'm looking forward to having a great conversation with you today.
0: I remember actually, I know exactly how many years. I remember when we first met in person. I certainly knew who you were, uh but it was election night 2016 at a TV studio.
1: Yeah, that was a heck of a night, wasn't it? <laughs> the world the world shifted a little bit.
0: So I was going to get to this later, but let's just talk about it now. I think it's fair to say we were both surprised on election night 2016. You know, I remember we were sitting in a conference room and I was excited to meet you, excited to be on uh, TV all night. And, you know, you, you, I believe both of us said something like, so this will be wrapped up around fill in the blank time that was about 15 minutes (laughs) from uh, when the polls closed on the East Coast. And then I remember a few hours later, you standing by the TV as Florida came in. And mm-hmm. I, I I still feel that in my stomach. And so first question to you, how did it happen and how did we get it so wrong?
1: Well, the first thing to understand is despite the narrative, it's very clear that um, the entire country was – Surprised, not just shocked, but surprised, including the Trump campaign. I mean, they'll they'll say that they were not, but but they absolutely were. There's just no question about it. You can't, you know, predict pulling it or plan for pulling it inside straight. And I don't want to take anything away from some of the operatives, um, but but I'll take a little bit away. And you'll remember that night when we were watching the returns come in, we were looking at the vote spread in in places like Virginia and in North Carolina. And the numbers were not what they should have been, and they were right. not what they should have been for. They were not what they should have been for two reasons, and that is there was a, a significant what we would call overperformance amongst white voters, and there was increasingly uh, a lower turnout than expected in uh, amongst black voters. And Virginia was the first place. I don't know if you remember or not. We were kind of like sitting in the green room watching this, and the, the gap, the margin in Virginia was not anywhere near where it should have been. And some of the northern counties, uh, more rural counties rather, were were very. Um, the gap was so big, we started to realize um, this is not a good omen for the Panhandle in Florida, or voters in Eastern Pennsylvania, or rural Ohio.
0: I do remember that. I still have a little PTSD from those moments. I I remember mm-hmm. your face standing right by the screen, and I I remember you e- explaining it and breaking that down, and. I remember getting a question about what was going to happen to the federal judiciary, which we can talk about later. But you just mentioned something that I wanted to get to, which is you said, you know, white voters overperforming black voters, underperforming or in terms of turnout that was surprising because you're one of the nation's experts on voting power. I want to tackle one of those big issues, which is why is race so often a proxy for partisan affiliation?
1: That's a fantastic question, and it's one I've uh, not only spent the better part of my career focusing on, but I just uh, wrapped up. Well, it's about a year ago now. I'm in campaign. I'm in campaign mode. So, teaching at USC, just this topic. Uh, there's an intersection between race, class, and partisanship that has uh, led us to a very unprecedented time in American politics. Before 2012, we never really spoke about white voters. And the reason why we didn't talk about white voters is because it was so ubiquitous. Pretty much everybody, yeah. 90%, of, 90% of the electorate was white. So we talked about different gradations, you know, what, what religion, what economic class, what gender. Those were all the breakdowns. We're very much focused now on white voters because whites are shrinking as a percentage of the population and as a part of the electorate. And this change is creating a visceral uh, reaction amongst the identity of white voters. It's most pronounced amongst non-college-educated white voters, but they are taking on the characteristics of an aggrieved racial minority. And it's embodied, uh, ironically enough, I mean, the Republican Party uh, has, has kind of judged the Democratic Party, in many ways legitimately so, for being a party of identity politics. But the biggest practitioner of identity politics in America today is the Republican Party. It's just white identity politics. And a lot of the cultural issues which have driven Republican voters, culturally conservative voters, have now been replaced by racial issues. And not to put it too crassly, but I think it's, it's, it, it may be harsh, but it's true. The culture wars are being replaced by race wars. And you are seeing this very pronounced with the President of the United States doing things like defending the Confederacy, talking about reclaiming our heritage, defending Confederate monuments, um, using language derogatory terms for people of color. Uh, These are not a dog whistle anymore. It's a bullhorn. And we have now, as, as America goes through this tumultuous demographic transformation, and we can talk a little bit more about why that's happening. But you are exactly right. The parties are now separating along racial lines uh, and class lines, but it's uh, going to define American politics for at least another decade. My guess is probably another 20 years.
0: Does that surprise you, the race war? So there's a lot of things about the current presidency that, and again, I'm thinking back to that election night that we spent together where we met in person, and there's some things that have gone exactly as predicted. And then there are some things where I just didn't think it would look quite like this. And I want to get into a few of those. But I want to ask you did you predict this race war? Was this just a fait accompli when it comes to having this president and the way he ran his campaign and the way he basically announced um, that he was going to make race and immigration part of his platform?
1: Well, look, there's no question that we were heading into unprecedented territory. But I also, um could not have predicted that we would be at a point where we would be, um, the the head of the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln, would be defending the Confederate flag and the symbols of the Confederacy. (laughs) No, I did not predict that. I I, I never would have imagined that. Having said that, um, appealing to issues of racial resentment has been central to uh, Donald Trump. Some would argue, with some credibility, that it has been an emerging um, aspect of Republicanism and the American right. I think that there is some truth to that. I, I don't buy into the idea that all Republicans are racists. I do believe, however, that all Republicans who are supporting Donald Trump are supporting a racist and they're doing it openly and knowledgeably. So it may be a difference without a distinction. But but no, no, I didn't think that, Jessica. I will say, however, looking back at it now as somebody who has focused on the growing Latino demographic and what that was going to mean for an emerging America, I probably should have been more aware that non-college educated whites who feel that they're declining in America, not just economically, but their status, would react viscerally. And that that destruction, and that's really the right word for it, this politics of anger has consumed the right, and it's now a defining feature of, of the Republican Party.
0: It does feel to me like the Republican Party has become the party of Trump, and that one of the things that has surprised me – is that the Republican establishment has stayed with President Trump. But I want to go all the way back to something you just said. You talked about Abraham Lincoln. I want to ask you, before too much more time goes by, tell us about the Lincoln Project. Tell us about how you're involved. What is it? What's its strategy? And how can listeners become involved?
1: So, the Lincoln Project um, was basically created by eight of us, eight political consultants. Um, A lot of names that I think your listeners will recognize Uh, George Conway, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, advisor to the president, Steve Schmidt, who's run campaigns uh, for President Governor Schwarzenegger's campaign, John Weaver, um, a longtime Republican strategist, Uh, Rick Wilson, who uh, is the brainchild behind a lot of our uh, ads, myself, Ron Stetslow. Uh, Reed Galen, and Jennifer Horn, the former chairwoman of the New Hampshire Party. The eight of us in November realized as we were heading into impeachment that we, the political class, the elected political class, was failing us. And by failure, what I mean is they were totally neglect in their duty in standing for the United States Constitution and holding the executive branch accountable. Uh, They were basically saying prior to impeachment that they didn't want to hear evidence that their minds were made up, that this was just a political ruse. And we realized that the republic was in danger at that point. Um, Partisanship is one thing, and all of our partisan loyalties are one thing, but our country is something entirely different. So the Lincoln Project decided, ironically enough, that it would be political consultants that would be the moral Arbiter, the the moral backbone of the Republican Party, and we would stand up not only to Donald Trump, but we would bring down his enablers. Very controversial, extremely aggressive, 100% absolutely necessary at this moment in American history. And I think that we have been remarkably successful in taking on, again, not just Trump, but the senators who enabled and allowed this to happen. and so we have been running a series of ads. I think a lot of your, your listeners are probably familiar with, with a lot of them. Some of them are focused online only. Others are focused for what we call an audience of one, literally ads that we run just for Donald Trump to see. And about a third of those ads are, are focused specifically on the Republicans who, like us, are very trepidatious, very uncomfortable, and know what they are seeing is not right in this party. And we are urging them to stand up for their country, stand up for the republic and our constitution. Do the right thing and not vote for Donald Trump this November. If I could talk real briefly about kind of the numbers that we need to make it successful, and I'll, I'll keep it short because I know you want to get onto other topics.
0: We no, only need I actually three... want to stay with this, and but okay. I want to I want to get to the numbers. But why are you in the minority? Why does it take this group of political consultants? Why has the Republican establishment been so loyal? to a president who I don't even see as adhering to any specific republican ideology.
1: So he doesn't and that's the that's the main point of what I think is happening here. Populism has consumed the American right. It's all—it's—it's it's emergent on the American left too, by the way. Maybe we should talk about that. But it's a social phenomenon. But it has consumed the Republican Party. The Republican Party no longer has an ideological core. In fact, they've canceled the component of the convention, the Republican National Convention, where they're going to have a party platform. They're basically saying we don't need a platform as long as we have Donald Trump. And it's emblematic of um, a time in American history where there is a growing sense that America is in decline that America has been failed by the elites, and as a result, it needs a strongman, a despot, to um, uh, follow in order to lead or guide them out. And you're exactly right. There is no underpinning. There is no intellectual underpinning to republicanism anymore. There is no ideological underpinning. There's no platform or policy positions with which to hold not only the president but any of the republican senators accountable. It's become essentially a gang. And that's the the problem. Incidentally, and you know this better than I, this is one of the fears, great fears that the founders had when putting the Constitution together, that this is what democracy could devolve into if we were not careful. And we find ourselves at just this moment, um, and we can get into some of the economic reasons and the demographic reasons as to why populism has occurred, if you'd like, but the most important thing to understand is uh, the Republican Party is defined only now by loyalty, not by ideas, not by policy positions. And that's what creates this um, culture of blame and anger. Uh, betrayal is the worst possible violation that you can commit. Uh, undying fealty to the leader, to Donald Trump, is paramount. And it's why the Republican senators have been afraid of Of turning on him or having a mean tweet sent about them because the base will turn on them and their political careers will end.
0: How did we get to this place? Because I always used to have a feeling that, and maybe this gets to the economic reasons that you wanted to talk about, the underpinnings. I always had the feeling when I was growing up, and granted it was in LA, so it was fairly blue, that people who didn't agree with me just had a different ideological perspective but that we all basically wanted to get to the same place that we just had a difference of opinion when it came to how to have the best economy somebody thinks more government control somebody thinks less government control we have different views when it comes to let's say you know how to support uh, the criminal justice system some people say more preventative measures. Some people say harsher penalties, but there's nothing inherently evil about that. We just we just saw different routes to get to the same place. It doesn't seem like that anymore. Now it seems, as you said, like a gang. So h- how did we mm-hmm. get to this place?
1: That's a great question. I think it's really important to understand um, those underlying dynamics, because as I said, I, I believe that while it won't well, it's going, to be, it's going to be characteristic of our politics as a nation for at least another 10, possibly 20 years, and, and here is essentially why. It goes back to your first question, which is we are increasingly identified within our own tribes, and the Republican Party is speaking to the fastest shrinking demographic in America and in California. The California Republican Party is 80% white in a state that is only 35% white. In America, nationwide, the Republican Party is about 86% white, and they're speaking largely to non-college-educated whites who are experiencing a a perception of significant decline and a loss of status. There's a reason why the language of making America great again and blaming Latinos, Muslims, the Chinese, anybody who is not a white Christian American— Um, has become definitive because it's basically fortifying itself for around this decline that it feels. Nationalism, which is what this really is, has is closely correlated to isolationism and protectionism of which Trump is all of those. And when that happens, this tribe, any group, and we've seen it throughout history, whether it's the Aztecs who were conquered, Confederate soldiers who were defeated, Russians who lost empire when the wall came down, they begin to exhibit very self-destructive behaviors. And so you see this demographic with very high rates of opioid addiction, very high rates of suicide, very high rates of obesity and underlying health conditions are all symptomatic of a people that are engaging in self-destructive behavior. It's no secret that most of these shooters who commit mass shootings are white, white males specifically. There's a reason for that. The problem is, Jessica, they are now acting out socially, and there's a socially destructive component. So this behavior now begins to tear down institutions. They don't have respect for the rule of law. They don't care if the Constitution is violated. They won't use vaccines or wear a mask, or they become openly belligerent when something threatens not just themselves, but their entire community or or neighborhood or country. It's a part of an America that is uh, experiencing declinism, which is what Trumpism is. At the same time, we're witnessing a more brown America that is emergent. And we're seeing an America being both reborn and dying at the same time. And America 2020 sits right at that inflection point.
0: So there's so much to pick up on there. But I mean, those numbers of the percentage of the Republican Party that are Caucasian is really startling, though perhaps not if you turn on the TV and look at a rally or if you look at a convention. Could the Republican Party have cut this off in the past, saved uh, themselves if they had been able to become more diverse? And how could they have done that?
1: That's another great question. And it's been the bulk of my work over the past 30 years, starting here in California, Look, as a young operative, that question is exactly why I began my career. And what I was aware of at the time in California, we were both, you know, 30 years younger in California, it was apparent that California was changing. The face and our complexion was changing. And what I was fascinated in understanding was, how is that going to change our politics and our governance? The real question was, if, as we became a more Latino California and a more Latino America, could this emergent group, of which I'm a member— eventually take over the governance in the same way that a country that was created and founded by the descendants of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, could we we successfully transition an America to a non-white country and maintain our governance structure? The Republican Party should have and could have been a central part of playing that role. What I never took into account was how deep the tribalism is, not just in white Americans, but in all humanity. It's a big part of who we are. And so what is being experienced by this declining segment of the population, again, is not unlike things that we have seen historically in the past. So the short answer is yes, the Republican Party could have headed this off decades ago. 2020 nationally was probably the last time that we could have headed it off uh, for the entire country, I am not bullish on the ability of the Republican Party to fix itself. There's no way that, you know, in in two or three years hence, if Donald Trump is not reelected, and I I hope that he will not be, but the Republican Party can't just be, be like, oh, let's forget that. Let's let's just re- think that was a weird blip that happened, and we can wake up from the hangover and keep going forward. That's not going to happen, and nor should it happen. That taint should live not just on the party's brand, but on all who were complicit in it, all who enabled it, and all who supported it. So I don't know that the Republican Party will ever be back. It it certainly will not be back in the way that you and I have known it through our adult lives, nor should it be.
0: So this is one of the big things that I talk to my students about, which is the norm breaking of this presidency and how it takes so long to build up the institutions of our government. It takes so long for us to have a belief that even if the constitution doesn't specifically say things that the president simply does not, you know, fill in the blank, um, offer, uh, something in return for, uh, uh, offer something to a foreign government in return for a picture at the white house or in return for foreign aid that the president simply does not say, I refuse to comply with subpoenas. The president doesn't abuse the national emergency power. But all of these things, and this is a theme you keep coming to, which I think is really important. This is not a matter of our country has fundamentally changed over the past three and a half years. And it's not a matter, it seems to me, of simply electing somebody else. So what do we do as a country? And if the Lincoln Project is working on this, you know, what is the plan for? I, I think we'd both say, hopefully, after President Trump is defeated, What's the plan for bringing us to a place where we don't have this rank tribalism, where, um, where we don't potentially elect another, frankly, um, unqualified strongman?
1: Well, let me make this really clear. The Lincoln Project is focused exclusively on one objective, and that is to eliminate Trump and Trumpism from American society, not just the Republican Party. In many ways, it's an attack on populism itself. And as I said earlier in the, in the discussion, populism is very, very much on the rise on the American left, I would argue even more so on the left than it is on the American right. And we believe it's also a threat, but it's not as imminent and, and immediate a threat as we are witnessing in the embodiment of Donald Trump. So we're not a policy organization. I'm happy to share some of my own thoughts, but they're not Lincoln Project thoughts because we're focused on just that. And there's no intent or desire, at least at this point in time, to be involved with any sort of party rebuilding or influencing policy on the other side of the aisle. That's just not who we are. We're political consultants, and that's just not what we're focused on. We believe that the threats that you outlined are very real. They transcend party. We need to focus on protecting our country, and that is what we view ourselves as doing every single day. So having said that, we are in a place where America is forever changed. When Joe Biden is sworn in, I think he will be in January of 2021, America cannot just go back and pretend this did not happen or some of these issues were not underlying uh, our, our, our basic sense of self. In many ways, the American identity has been transformed. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing especially when you look at things like racial consciousness, when we're talking about political identity and political tribalism, we have to start discussing race and our Americanness in a very different way than we have for the past 250 years. Not just because of our original sin of slavery, not just because of the black-white paradigm with which we have always discussed race, but because race is going to be much more complex, much more complicated, and much more pervasive in terms of diversity uh, for a generation of Americans going forward. The question also is one of institutions and norms, as you pointed out. It's taken 250 years to develop these rules with which we have all played by up until 2016. And now we've got a bull in a china shop who's just knocking these things over on a daily basis. It's also happening at a time, as I mentioned, where a very different uh, people with a very different cultural background are emerging who don't have... That history, that cultural history, that, that political tradition and experience of, of individualism, of self-reliance, of representative government, of the type of uh, democracy that we've built, that's just a fact. And the, that's a, going to be a very big challenge to see if this American experiment can be maintained for this next generation of Americans. I think the answer ultimately is going to be a function of the fight within which this emergent America – uh, is undertaking and by this fight i mean by repudiating trump and trumpism along with repudiating the declinism that is characteristic of it will hopefully in my estimation provide a better civics lesson for what americanness is than maybe what our educational system <laughs> provided that allowed us to get to this point and that's the great hope is again, we are at this inflection point where there is half of our population is experiencing a strong sense of decline and really believes that if America is not a white Christian nation, it's not worth saving. And the ascendant group is largely a Latino population with little or no historical experience of American political traditions, with the exception of seeing this declinism play out in full display, recognizing it's dangerous and hopefully us threading the needle to get to a place where we can preserve and protect these institutions for the next generation of Americans.
0: Threading the needle is exactly right. It's not. It's no easy task, and and I'm glad that you're on it. So, this is one of the things I wonder about. You talked about the racial makeup of the Republican Party, about the feelings of anger that have defined. Uh, it's seemingly ha- at least thirty percent of voters at this point. Do you Mm -hmm. think that Democrats similarly would have been susceptible to electing somebody like Donald Trump, somebody who, from my perspective and perhaps from yours, again, is totally unqualified, unfit for the position, um, but has promised, I will get, you know, I'll pack the judiciary I will implement all of those new government programs that you want. Just I know I'm basically, you know, that you make a deal where I know I'm kind of crazy and I know I'm going to say these things and you're going to have to write off a lot of my rhetoric, but we're going to get a lot done in those four years. Is that symptomatic just to the Republican Party or could the same thing have happened for Democrats?
1: It's very, very much um, a possibility on the American left. And as I've been saying, the only, the only reason, look, we have to remember Donald Trump won the Republican primary because there were 16 candidates in that primary. He won a plurality. He didn't win a majority of Republican votes. And that's very important because in a multi-candidate field, if a third of the electorate, uh, in this case, we're talking about Democrats, if a third of the electorate had these same populist sentiments, there's no question that the type, this same type of phenomenon could have emerged. And I think it's much more likely to emerge on the left than on the right because of what is happening mathematically to both parties. Be mindful. The Republican Party is shrinking at a very fast rate because people are fleeing it, especially college-educated voters. They are leaving the Republican Party. That means the Democratic Party is expanding. And as it does, the populist sentiment expands along with it. So I'm going to get into some policy here because it's reflective of the way that voters' attitudes are um, in in terms of, you know, well, let me me give you a specific example. When Donald Trump talks about building a wall, it doesn't matter whether or not he actually gets it done. His, his, His supporters don't care. It's the symbolism of what he is espousing. The same thing with with, uh, policy positions on the left. If you say things like um, defunding the police, nobody really has a plan for that. It's a symbolic lens through which you view somebody's political perspective. And the the danger in that, and I'm not talking about those policies, policies specifically, although I believe they're both dangerous, but the danger in the driving political sentiment behind it is the actual voter doesn't care about whether it's realistic or not. They care about whether you are saying the things that put you in their tribe. That is populism. Populism is the lack of an ideological core. Populism says that person is the person I agree with on all these nebulous ideas, and they, and perhaps they alone, can take care of us. That's very dangerous for a democracy. It's literally why we created, and I say we, the founders, created a United States Senate, an electoral college, representative government. They created all of these safeguards to protect the country from exactly this type of behavior. And if we believe that this is just a weird phenomenon happening on the American right, you're not paying attention. I believe it's a much bigger phenomenon on the American left.
0: So- Here's our next episode, anti-majoritarian organizations, structures, the Senate, which has not saved us, it's not worked as the founders intended, the Electoral College, which has not saved us, has not worked as the founders intended, and then the Judiciary where we have the Senate has really allowed it to be packed, arguably with some unqualified judges. So that is for. I hope I'm asking this live, but I hope that you'll come back and we'll do all of that for part two. Uh, I promise yeah. that you, you would be out. I know it's just a really quick 16 hours that we have coming up. Um, <laughs> let me ask, what else can listeners? be doing. I think I cut you off before you talked about some numbers with respect to the Lincoln project and I want to hear more about how can people become involved? How can Republicans who feel disaffected become involved? What can independents do? What can Democrats do? Give us a resource guide if you will.
1: Sure. So it's going to become increasingly important as we come into this age where the party structures become weaker. And that's also incidentally what we're witnessing is both parties are becoming weaker as their populist base becomes stronger. Every vote is going to become much more important. And I don't mean that in the way you've heard it for the past 30 or 40 years. And let me explain why. If a three to four, not 34, a three to 4% of the Republican vote peels off of Donald Trump he will lose in an electoral landslide, just three to 4%. He needs his entire base solidified 100% plus an overperformance of independence. He's now polling somewhere in the mid low 80s with Republicans at this point. So that's why you're seeing polling. And again, we're in early mid July here. Uh, his polling numbers are sagging so much. So, uh, so critically. Um, So I want you to understand the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's not going to take major shifts in voting patterns to have a tectonic shift in the way our country is led and governed going forward. What that means is the involvement of everybody is of critical importance. And now I'm going to say something a little bit more controversial, and this drives old school practitioners crazy, especially in a time of pandemic. The best kind of activism you can engage in is online activism. And again, I'm an old practitioner myself, and there's people always saying, oh, you know, Twitter and Facebook is not making a difference. That is absolutely absurd. I think it's actually the best possible thing you can be doing right now. And I don't mean posting angry screeds on your Facebook, but what I do mean is being an echo chamber for those voices and those organizations and those advocates, advocates who you agree with, because that is where the dialogue is changing. A lot of money is in politics. I know this is a, an important topic to you, Jessica, but I would argue that money is having far, far less influence in our political process, certainly at the national level in a presidential campaign than it ever has before. And the reason why is people are voting with their Twitter handle now. They're advocating and making things trend and, and, and voicing support and engaging in a debate that money can't buy. And so, for the time being, that's going to be my advice. For the next hundred days, the more engaged you can be, the more you openly express your support and disdain for what you support and what you oppose, the more influence that you can have, especially when you should be sheltering in place to the greatest extent possible, not knocking on doors and not doing uh, voter outreach. You have a voice and you need to start using it.
0: That's such a good note to end the bulk of our conversation on, but you're not done yet. I like okay. to end, I like to end this podcast by we learned an enormous amount. And I actually completely agree with you when it comes to these issues of money and politics. And when I first walked into a classroom about a decade ago and I was teaching money and politics, I asked them where do you get your news? And you can see and where do you get your political information and how do you decide to vote? And you could see at that moment that there will be a time when money doesn't play as much of a role. I don't think we're there Mm -hmm. quite yet. I still think it's very important to have restrictions on money in politics, but it's clearly changing. And just look at how many Twitter followers you have, Mike Madrid. So they're they're (laughs) there. I mean, they're there mostly to witnessed the battle between you and the squirrels uh, during the pandemic, but... That's
1: right, right, that's right. I've got to tell you, let me interject really quick, this squirrel saga, if you haven't uh, followed this, you can follow me on Twitter, a shameless plug. But yeah, um, more people followed me to watch this squirrel saga than anything I've ever did in the previous 10 years in politics. So it does tell you about who we are as a people.
0: Listeners, it's at Madrid underscore Mike follow him for all things related to the Lincoln Project, for squirrels, and for a lot of really astute political commentary. Here we go with our first question for the end. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why?
1: Oh, I think hands down it would be Voltaire. I think it would be fascinating to have dinner with somebody who was not just years ahead of his time, but probably a good century ahead of his time and to to learn or listen i I think Voltaire would have an amazing Twitter feed. I mean i 'm on Twitter a lot, but <laughs> this, the ability, the ability to communicate great philosophical insight uh, explain tremendous political sentiment in in one snarky sentence was kind of voltaire 's trademark and I think I think he'd be a phenomenal phenomenal guest for dinner
0: you're stranded on a desert island. you can bring one meal. What is it? <sighs>
1: Wow, that's a great question. I'm going to say lasagna. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I would reheat it or keep it, but you know, if you're going to get, if you're going to start a, a long journey in isolation, uh, you might as well start it with lasagna. Have it stick to the ribs for a little while, enjoy a good Italian <laughs> dish, and do your best with it.
0: Last one, you get a superpower for an hour. What is it?
1: I think the ability to uh, command somebody to tell the truth. Uh, is has become truth a superpower serum. that is a uh, truth serum. Yeah, I, 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 I was asked uh, on a previous uh, podcast interview. You know, what would I ask Donald Trump? And the problem with asking him something is you don't ever know what 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 the truth would be anyway. So I, I would, I would love to to put a few drops of truth serum in his drink, or at least have the ability to command him to tell the truth, and then then I'd have a great hour of discussion with him.
0: Well, this was part of the. Issue in the Mueller report, right? How much you actually push the president of the United States to answer questions because it's not clear how honest he would have been, or at least that was my perception of part of the reason that they didn't push harder for an interview of the president. So they just needed your tooth serum, Mike Madrid. Thank you for passing judgment with us,
1: Jessica. It's always great to be with you. I hope you're doing well.
0: As well as we can. All right. I follow you, and I hope everybody else will on Madrid underscore Mike very entertaining, very educational. I want to thank the listeners so much for being with us for another episode of Passing Judgment. Please listen, please subscribe, please rate us only if you like us. I have a very fragile ego. You can follow me on Twitter at Levenson Jessica, the show at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram, Passing Judgment Pod. We'll see you next time.